Well, today I want to do something very different as we finish the series of Hased, God's grace, God's covenant. We just got back from a trip from Israel. Now, when I was flying to Israel, I had a message that I was working on for week number five, and then I got back, and with jet lag, I'm up every morning at 2 a.m., which I'm very, very productive right now, so it's a good thing. Uh, but getting up at 2 a.m., God began to speak to me about this week's message, and I changed everything over the last couple of days. That's why you don't have message notes this weekend, because I didn't have time to, to get them in to the team to print. And what I want to do, because there's nothing to me that, that speaks of God's said, God's grace and covenantal love with mankind more than walking through the land of Israel, more than seeing God's faithfulness over time in history. And so what I want to do today is I want to take you on a biblical expedition with the team that that I, I just had the privilege of walking through Israel with. This was the beginning of our journey, and it was a biblical expedition all of the way. We had a Christian Indiana Jones, one of the top archaeologists and biblical scholars in the world. That's him with the cool little you know, neck scarf going on there. He even looks like an archaeologist with his hat and his scarf. But he was a brainiac. I mean, this guy, you know, unfortunately, uh, what I discovered this week is half of everything I know is completely wrong. Like, he corrected so many things that I've preached over the years. Not necessarily doctrine, but, but more history. Uh, let me give you an example. I didn't tell any other services this, so you're going to have to keep this one a secret. Remember when I preached about the, the, the tallit a couple weeks ago, the prayer shawl that, that Jesus wore? That didn't exist to the third or fourth century, I found out this week. <laughs> Jesus never wore one of those, so there you go. But the point of the message was that the, the seat seat at the end of the tallit, those, those did exist, and Jesus did have those on his garments, and that was what the lady grabbed hold of. But the prayer shawl thing did not exist around the first century, so Jesus never wore one. So I, I got corrected a lot this week, and I like that, to be very honest. I like to, to find out that I'm wrong because it means I'm learning and I'm growing and, and I'm discovering new stuff. And so a lot of this week was, thanks, Mark, thanks, thanks, Mark, Mark, you ruined another message for us, thanks, Mark. Um, <laughs> But it, it was really, really good. One of the things he began the journey with us, helping us understand, is when you study the Bible, you ask a couple questions. What did the Bible mean, and what does it mean? In other words, what did it mean when it was written, and what does it mean for us today? And he gave us four lenses to study the Bible, four, four views of looking at the Bible. The first one is spatial. God, God had the Bible written in a specific time and space, and there's a lot of geography in the Bible. There's a lot of fauna flora in the Bible, animal life, plant life. That's very significant. And the, new, the, the, the biblical authors, they, they just assume you understood when they put, okay, there was a stream over here and a hill over here and a place over here and this over that, that you understood what all of that meant because it's the, the, the land, the geography is just as much a character in the story as the people themselves. So understanding that, the historical lens of studying the Bible. See, a lot of us, we, we just look at the Bible as an ancient document, but we don't realize the time of Abraham is a thousand years away from the time of King David. So it wasn't the same at all. Historically, culturally, it was very, very different. Imagine, imagine this continent a thousand years ago. It's not the same as it is today, is it? That's the difference between Abraham and David. The time of King David to the time of King Je Je or to the time of Jesus is another thousand years. They're very, very different. Jesus to Abraham is two thousand years. That's what it would be like for us to the time of Jesus. 
So it's very different histories. You can't just assume it was all the same. Then there's the cultural view of the Bible. You see, in ancient uh, Eastern cultures, the, the philosophy was we over me. And that's the opposite of America, because America, we're very egocentric. It's the pursuit of life, liberty, and happiness. It's all about me. It's whatever I want, what's feel good to me, what's right to me. And I could care less if anyone around me suffers as long as I get what I want, what I need. When the Bible was written, people did not have that attitude or that philosophy. They would choose to suffer themselves over punishing the community that they lived in. Because it was always the collective whole of the community was more important than the individual. It's just, just un- important to understand these things. One of the things that uh, our tour guide said, Mark, who's our archaeologist and biblical scholar, he said, modern believers want the Bible and its figures to be like them. We want Jesus to be a man for all peoples, yet Jesus and his world are not my world or your world. So often we want Jesus to look like us, act like us, think like us, understand like us, but Jesus was a first century Jew. He was very, very different than us today. There's no greater truth of this statement than when you go to the church of Annunciation in, in the city of Nazareth. In the city of Nazareth, there's, there's a church they built over the home of Mary and Joseph, where they believe Mary and Joseph live. And around the church grounds, is they, have, they have paintings from different Catholic churches all over the world. And you get to the painting from the Chinese Catholic Church, because it's all paintings of Mary, uh, Virgin Mary, and the baby Jesus. And, and you get to the Chinese painting of Jesus and Mary, and they're both Chinese. They don't look Jewish at all. They look Chinese. It's a Chinese baby Jesus and a Chinese Mary. And we all do that. We all want Jesus to look like us, to act like us, to think like us, to fit into our world and into our frame of context. And then the last lens of studying the Bible is the spiritual lens understanding the spiritual truth and the point. You see, when you study Genesis, you get into the first 10 chapters of Genesis, a lot of people get hung up on the science of it. But you got to understand, it was never written to be a science book. They're not writing with our understanding of science and our understanding of technology. And so we, we approach it asking the wrong questions. Many people study the beginning of Genesis by asking the question, how And when? When did it happen? Is it 6,000 years ago? Is it 6 million years ago? And how did God do it all? Those are the wrong questions to approach the Bible with. The real question of Genesis is the who and the why. Who put us on earth and why? It's a narrative. It's a story that God is telling about our existence. And so one of the things that, that Mark says on the tour is he says, we must first endeavor to understand what the Bible meant Before we can know what it means, failure to engage the first century Jesus of Nazareth means we wind up following a Jesus that we make in our own image, a Jesus that never existed. One of the other things I really loved on the tour that Mark taught us how to do is he taught us how to read the Bible with a map. One of the things he said to us often throughout the journey is never read the Bible without a map. Because again, the, top, the, the, the geography, the locations, the topography has so much to say about the actual story. People always wonder, why is Israel so significant? Well, in ancient times, Israel was the crossroads of the world. It, you know, in ancient times, the Old Testament period, the axis of the world was north to south. And all of the ancient highways ran through Israel. To connect Asia to Africa, you had to go through e- Israel. 
Well, Alexander the Great came on the scene and he turned the axis of the world where no longer we think in terms of north and south, we think in terms of east and west, and that's still true to this day. Israel was still the crossroads between the western world and the eastern world. It's why it was so significant. One of the things, like when you read the Bible with a map, you discover is so many of the stories that, that we've been taught aren't quite accurate unless you understand it through a map. Let me give you an example. In Joshua chapter 10, it says, on the day that the Amorites, on the day the Lord gave the Amorites over to Israel, Joshua said to the Lord in the presence of Israel, sun stand still over Gibeon and you moon over the valley of Ajalon. This is the famous sun stand still battle. And I grew up being taught that, you know, Joshua's fighting, it's the afternoon, the sun is about to set, and he's wanting to finish the battle. And so he cries out to God, God, keep the sun still so that we can finish this battle. But that's not what's taking place. See, look at this. It says the sun is over Gibeon and the moon is over Ajalon. Well, Gibeon is on the east and Ajalon is on the west. It's not talking about a sunset, it's talking about a sunrise. You see, Joshua and his army traveled all night long, and they wanted it to stay dark for an extra hour so that they could have a surprise attack on the, the enemy that they were about to attack. But again, without a map, you wouldn't see something like that. But you start reading with a map, and you can see north, south, east, and west, and trade routes and roads. Things start making so much more sense. From there, we went up to the tell of Beersheba. Beersheba is the ancient city where Abraham made the covenant with Abimelech. Beersheba means well of the oath. It's where they had the oath together. And one of the things that, that when you travel Israel, everything is a tell. What a tell is, is a hill. It's kind of like a layer cake. So the tell Beersheba is a layer cake. If you cut it, a slice of this layer cake, you're going to have different civilizations. You'll have civilizations from the Abraham period, from the David period, from the time of Jesus, because what happens is they build a city, and then the city is destroyed, and they build on top of that, and then that city is destroyed, and they build on top of that, and that city is destroyed. And so it's just a layer cake of different civilizations and different time periods that you see. From there, we went into the wilderness of Zin. This is a place where the children of Israel wandered for much of the 40 years in the wilderness. And one of the things you realize very quickly about the wilderness of Zin, you see, the Bible says Moses was the most humble man who had ever lived. Now, why was Moses so humble? Because he lived most of his life in the desert. The thing about the desert is the desert will humble you. What you realize in the desert very quickly is there are no self-made men in the desert. There are no self-made people in the desert. You've got to rely on community. You've got to rely on people. You can't survive on your own. It's too dangerous. It's too arid. It's too dry. This is in the middle of the Negev. Moses couldn't survive, so he had to learn to depend on other people. Uh, to me, this, this really speaks to why our small groups are so important as a church. Too many people are living in a spiritual desert, trying to do it all on their own. The reality is you, you were never created to do it on your own. It, it Honestly, it takes humility to be in a small group. It takes humility to say, I need people in my life. I need community. I need people around me. We hiked through this wilderness, and it was just an incredible, you know, uh, opportunity. This is in Numbers chapter 20. This is where Miriam, Moses' sister, died. 
It's where Moses, you know, the people got, you know, angry with Moses. And they're like, we're, we're dying out here. We're thirsty. So God says to Moses, go speak to the rock and let the rock bring forth water. And then Moses, out of anger, instead of speaking to the rock, he takes his staff and he strikes the rock. It happened right here in the wilderness of Zin. And water came out. And God said, because you did not keep my name holy, you're not going to enter into the promised land. Do you realize God's name is at stake in our life? Like our life matters. Our life has significance to the name of God. It was here in this wilderness that the, the, the children of Israel learned how to become a fighting force. Remember when they left Egypt, they were slaves. And they've got to take a promised land. Why did they have to wander for so long in the wilderness? They had to learn how to fight. They had to toughen up. They had to go from being slaves to a fighting force that could overthrow the different cities of giants that they were about to encounter in the promised land. It was also in this wilderness in 1 Kings chapter 19, Elijah flees. Remember Elijah, he battled the prophets of Baal and he destroyed all the prophets of Baal and one woman gets angry at him and so he flees and he runs for his life. It was here in this wilderness that God sent the angel of the Lord to supernaturally bake a meal for Elijah and then all of a sudden, Elijah's there, and there's this great mighty wind, and then there's an earthquake, and then there's a fire. Where else do we see in a hill or a mountain a mighty wind, an earthquake, and a fire? It was on Mount Sinai with Moses. God appears to Moses in the wind, and the earthquake, and the fire. But here the story tells us in 1 Kings 19 that God was not in the wind, and God was not in the earthquake. And God was not in the fire. And it says that there was a whisper. In the Hebrew, it was a silence. When you're standing out in this desert, the silence can be deafening. And it says, in the silence was God. God was in the silence. Which really hit home because we think, how often do we create silence for God to show up in our life? Even in our quiet time, we fill it with noise, don't we? We turn on some worship, we get out our Bible. We, we never just sit silently allowing God to show up in our life. From there, we went into the valley of Elah. You have Soka over here on the right in this hill area. you got the valley of Elah. This is the famous scene of David and Goliath, where the Bible says, Now the Philistines gather their forces for war, and assembled at Soka in Judah, they pitched camp at Ephesdamin between Soka and Ezekah. Saul and the Israelites assembled and camped in the valley of Elah and drew up their battle line to meet the Philistines. The Philistines occupied one hill and the Israelites another with the valley between them. That would have taken place right in this valley. Now, the reason this was so strategic is this valley dog legs left and it turns in the road up into Bethlehem. You see, the Philistines were on their way to Bethlehem. Bethlehem was a very strategic city during this time period. And so Saul and his forces had to guard the route to Bethlehem. And then if you've ever seen the movie Troy with Brad Pitt, terrible movie, but, but remember Brad Pitt comes out and he's like, send me your best fighter and I'll fight your best fighter. That's what's happening. It's a champion battle. The champion of one army is going to fight the champion of the other army. So Goliath is out there day after day taunting the Israelites. And then David comes out and we get our famous saying, David and Goliath, that we use every time we have a March Madness in round 16, right? 
You get the 16 seed versus the one seed, and we say it's a David and Goliath matchup. Now, how many of you grew up believing that David was the underdog in the fight? Come on, be honest. How many of you believe David was the underdog? David's this little kid, and he's got these little pebbles, and he's fighting this giant. Can I be honest with you? Again, this is one of the stories that was shattered for me on this trip. Uh, one of my thank you, Mark, for ruining that for me. Um, David was not the underdog. If anything, David had the advantage. If you want to know what happened with David and Goliath, Saul showed up to a gunfight with a knife. You don't bring a knife to a gunfight. Slingshots were the modern artillery of that time period. Remember Robert Berger, who spoke last week? He was with us a year ago, and he talked about the left-handed slingshot people in the Bible, how accurate they were. David was never wounded. He had his good hand, and he practiced slingshot every day. He got so good with the slingshot, he could kill a lion and kill a bear. Let me explain this to you. They would use stones the size of baseballs. I want you to think of a rock the size of a baseball. They could throw it 100 miles per hour over 200 yards and hit the hair off of a camel's back. That's how accurate they were. Goliath never stood a chance. I don't care how big you are. You, you, got, a, you got a baseball-sized rock flying at your forehead at 100 miles per hour, you're going to go down. You know, we got this idea. That, no, David was in his 20s or 30s. He wasn't some little kid. Like, he knew what he was doing, and he, he, he took care of business. From there, we went on to Jaffa Port. Here's Amanda and I. We're standing in the port of Jaffa. This is one of the most famous ancient ports of history. Everybody from the pharaohs of Egypt to the Caesars of Rome to Alexander the Great went through this very port. This is where Jonah boarded the ship when he was running away from God, and he got thrown overboard and got swallowed by the great fish. This is the port of Jaffa. From there, we went into Caesarea Maritima. Caesarea is one of the incredible cities that King Herod built right on the ocean. This is where Paul preached to King Agrippa at the end of the book of Acts. This is, this is the very location, not, not the theater specifically, but this city is the location the very first time the Holy Spirit came upon non-Jewish people. Just an incredible place. And Herod was a master builder. Here's one of Herod's palaces. It was his summer palace. This is actually where Pontius Pilate lived full time. He would only come to Jerusalem during the festivals. Herod loved swimming pools. Here's one of his freshwater swimming pools. He built in every one of his palaces. It's good to be king in this time period. He's got his mosaic floors. I mean, it was just the most opulent, beautiful palace you can imagine. And it was here that Paul was under house arrest for two years. Now, let's talk about Paul for a moment. If you're under house arrest in a beautiful seaside city, and this is your view every day, and you're the Apostle Paul, a prolific writer of the New Testament, what are you going to spend most of your time doing? Writing, right? You're going to be writing letters. Do you realize for two years that Paul is under house arrest, we don't have one recorded letter from Paul during this time period? Paul doesn't write anything. It's as if Paul is angry. It's as if Paul is disappointed. It's as if Paul is frustrated with God. You see, Paul had an agenda. He had a plan. He was on his way somewhere, and all of a sudden, there's this divine delay that took him off course. And so for two years, he's sitting there frustrated. Now, remember who one of Paul's traveling companions was in the Bible? Luke. Luke was one of his traveling companions. Luke was not from Israel. Paul met Luke in one of the cities on his missionary journey. Luke 
writes more than half of the New Testament. Not in amount of books, but in amount of words. You take the book of Luke and the book of Acts, and you put them together, and it accounts for more than half of the New Testament. Here's the question. When did Luke have a chance to meet the disciples? When did Luke have a chance to travel around Israel and interview people and do the research he needed to do to write the books God called him to write when Paul was under house arrest? See, one of our problems is we're so egocentric in our society. We think it's all about me, all about what I'm going through, all about my pain. Sometimes it has nothing to do with you. It has to do with what God is doing next to you. Paul wound up in a divine delay so that we could have the book of Luke and the book of Acts. Had nothing to do with Paul's suffering. God was doing something next to him that Paul couldn't see at the time. But if Paul didn't have this divine delay, we wouldn't have what we have through Luke's writing. So, it's, so, so don't, ever, don't ever despise divine delays. Sometimes God uses them in our life. Here we have the hippodrome that Herod built. If you ever watched the movie Ben-Hur where the chariot races would happen, it, here's a fascinating fact for you. Herod is the first and only Jew to ever be the head of the Olympic Committee. And I say only because they'll never allow a Jewish person to be the head of the Olympic Committee again since King Herod. Um, he was the only one. And if you've ever celebrated a bronze or silver medal, that's King Herod. There was no such thing as bronze or silver until Herod was the head of the Olympic Committee. So here is the Hippodrome where they would do chariot races. They would also you know, uh, uh, torture and kill people here for sport. We have the story of Rabbi Akiva, one of the famous rabbis who they raked his flesh with an iron fork from his skin because he wouldn't stop you know, teaching the Torah, Judaism. Uh, here's an interesting one for you. Here is the public bathroom in the Hippodrome. Um, you would sit on the stones next to each other and do your business, and they had a stick with a sponge. You just didn't want to go last because everybody shared the same stick and sponge. So there you go, an ancient public toilet system. I thought you'd enjoy that. Then we went up to uh, Mount Carmel. This is where Elijah battled the prophets of Baal up on the top of Mount Carmel. We talked a little bit about that. Then we went down into Nazareth. Here is a first century home in the city of Nazareth. Nazareth and Bethlehem were both built into hills. So it's hills, and they would build the houses into the side of hills. So they were, they were kind of like caves, but they were more formal than caves built into the house. So, so here's, here, here's a first century. This is the village of Jesus growing up. First century, there was probably 40 to 50 homes in this village, probably about 500 people that lived in this village. And what do you see here in the living room of the home? You see a manger. See that? They put mangers in homes. Why? Because if you have a goat, that goat is very valuable because it makes milk for your family. Are you going to leave your goat outside at night? No, you're going to protect your goat and you're going to bring him inside where it's safe. Where did people keep their animals in the first century in their home? That's why the mangers were in the living room. Jesus was not the first baby put in a manger. Every baby was put in a manger. So I don't want to kill your Christmas, but Jesus was not born in a stable. He was born in the living room of somebody's home. And Joseph was not a deadbeat that showed up in the middle of the night. When you read the story, see, we read into the story, and we don't read the story. If you read the story, it says, while they were in Bethlehem. So they were in Bethlehem for a good period of time before Jesus was born. Luke also tells us that Bethlehem is the city of David, and he said Joseph was of the line of David. Joseph is royalty. Who's going to turn away royalty with a pregnant wife in Bethlehem? If you understand anything at all about hospitality in the ancient world, it was huge. They're not going to turn them away. Jesus was born 
in a living room. And it was here in Nazareth, in the synagogue, that Jesus in Luke chapter 4 first stands up to announce his ministry, and he reads from Isaiah. Let me ask you a question. What does that tell us about Jesus? He stands up in Luke 4, and he reads from Isaiah. What does it tell us? It tells us that Jesus is literate. That, that may not sound like a big detail to you. That's a huge detail. Jesus was incredibly literate. He could read. He could write. He was very well educated. Here's the next question. Who taught Jesus how to read and write? They didn't have schools. Joseph. It was the father's responsibility in a Jewish family to teach the children how to read and how to write. Joseph was very. Joseph was a builder. They didn't have wood carpentry back then. Joseph was a builder with stone. Joseph built, the, the builder was also the architect and the builder. So if homes collapsed on people, you didn't stay in business very long. So the builder in a community was typically one of the most respected people in the community. In most first century communities, the builder was oftentimes the rabbi or the sage and would teach in the synagogues. Joseph was very respected. Joseph was the one that taught Jesus how to read. When, when Mary went to get Jesus out of the temple in Jerusalem at 12 years old, what did Jesus say to his mother? Why did you come get me? Don't you know I must be about my father's business? Who was Jesus talking about? What did Jesus see every week growing up from his father, Joseph? He saw his father at the synagogue week after week, teaching the Torah, reading the Torah. Interesting stuff when you really dig into the culture and the history of it. Uh, from there, we went to the Sea of Galilee. We stayed at a beautiful resort on the water in Galilee. I got up early in the morning, and I went out and sat at the beach and read John chapter 6. There's nothing like reading John chapter 6 on location. Like, you can see all of the events of the chapter. You see the feeding of the 5,000 and the hill on your right, and then you see the, the hill that Jesus would have climbed up, and then you see where the disciples would have gotten the boat and went to the other side, and then Jesus walking on water, and it's just incredible sitting there on the beach watching this take place. Then we went up to an overlook, 95% of Jesus' Galilean ministry happened within eyesight of where we're standing. But I want to ask you a question. Does this look like a desert to you? See all the green? See how lush it is? See all the, the vineyards and the gardens and the trees? This is where Jesus grew up. How many of you had an idea Jesus grew up in a desert because of all the movies we've watched? Right? Like, like we didn't know Jesus lived in the desert until the movie came out because you go to Israel... He didn't live in a desert. This is the wilderness. The, wilderness. the word wilderness does not mean desert. It means isolated place. This is the wilderness Jesus would go into. It was beautiful. One of the most beautiful places in Israel is the area around the Sea of Galilee. Here is a first century synagogue in Chorazin. Chorazin is one of the cities Jesus cursed. Woe to you, Chorazin. It was here we had an amazing discussion that I just want to say a couple words about. It doesn't have anything to do with the message. This is free. Um, but we recently had a very prominent Christian leader uh, here in America, actually here in Southern California, come out about a week or two ago and made some really disparaging remarks about women in the ministry. I don't know if you've heard anything about it. I hope you haven't. It's been in news in kind of like the pastor world of just some of the negative things he said. Let me just say something about women in ministry and, and a little bit about Judaism and Christianity, just, just, just for your history. In first century Judaism, women were allowed to read the Torah in synagogue worship. Which tells us what? Tells us they were educated. Tells us they were literate. Tells us they were respected. We actually have stories in first century Judaism of women sages or rabbis with disciples. Now, it wasn't the rule. It was an exception, but they were there. 
The Apostle Paul in Romans chapter 16, he lists a woman, Junius, as an apostle in the New Testament, a woman apostle in the New Testament. In the same chapter, he lists another woman as a deacon. Acts chapter 16 tells us about Priscilla, who was a teacher in the New Testament. So let me just say, the comments you may or may not have heard this week were absolutely wrong. There was nothing further from the truth. First century Judaism and Christianity all appreciated, valued, and embraced women in ministry and their place in the church. Let me just, just that's for free today. Now here's why, here's why my wife will not get baptized in the Jordan River. There are giant catfish. That like to nibble your toes. They are, this is, these are the steps leading down into the baptism area. They look like sharks. They're huge. They're all throughout the Jordan River. Here we are in Capernaum. If you ever read Mark chapter 1, that all took place right around where we're standing. This is the seaport village Jesus based his ministry out of. Uh, then we go over to Magdala to a first century synagogue. A lot of the synagogues we found were tells. So the actual first century synagogue is buried underground, and you have more of a third or fourth century synagogue. This is one of the few areas where it's actually a first century synagogue. We believe Jesus taught right in this location because he taught in all the synagogues in Galilee. And so, so it doesn't never say Magdala, but because it says he taught in the synagogues of Galilee, we believe he taught here. And then we went out on the boat one night. Remember, Jesus and disciples were always on the boat at night. And so we went out in the middle of the lake at night, and we turned off the lights, turned off the engine, turned off the sound, and we just sat there in silence in the middle of the lake for about 10 minutes. And I'm telling you, God, you could just, God was speaking. It, it was a powerful experience. You see Mount Arbel overlooking the Sea of Galilee, just a beautiful, beautiful place. Then we went to the desert up above the Dead Sea. Now, Herod, again, was a master builder. One of, the, one of the most incredible works Herod did was Masada. It was a desert mountain palace fortress overlooking the Dead Sea. Here is a model. It's three stories. This is the southern palace. It had three swimming pools inside. He loved his swimming pools. It was really good when you were the king in this society. Uh, here's another shot of the model. You can see the three different levels coming down the side of the mountain. You see the ridges in the model. Those are actually little rivets that Herod cut into the mountain for rainwater to fill the cisterns. When it would rain in Jerusalem, the water would come down into the cisterns. Now, here's the model. Let me show it to you in real life. This is what it looks like in real life. You have the, the, you have the pools still back in there. You have the platforms, the level. He, he built an outdoor dining area in the second level that is just incredibly impressive. Here's standing above it, looking down to the different levels. I mean, this is on top of a mountain in a desert. I mean, how do you do this? Like Herod built some of the most incredible stuff. This went on siege by the Romans. It was the last stand of the Jewish revolt. And here is the remains of the Roman camp that was at the bottom of the mountain. And you actually had the siege ramp going up to the top of Masada up there. And then my wife, you know, was getting very tired of me taking pictures of her. And so she wasn't happy. She was like, she's like, you're acting like a tourist. You keep taking pictures of me. Then from there, we went into the Wadi Kelt. This is the middle of the Judean wilderness. This is the road from Jericho to Jerusalem that Jesus would have traveled through this little Wadi area. This is where David shepherded sheep uh, all throughout this area. You understand the Psalms when you walk back in here. You see that the green areas in the, in the Wadi or the ravine area, it's because that's where the water flowed when it rains. But the danger was there were flash floods that would come out of nowhere. 
That's why David over and over says, you are my high place. You lift me up. You lift me up above danger. Because if you were in these little wadis asleep, the flash floods came unannounced. It would be raining in Jerusalem. You would have no idea. And all of a sudden, out of nowhere, every year to this day, people in Israel die because of these flash floods and these, these ravines. They just get caught and they can't get out. From there, we went over to the West Bank and the Palestinian side. This is Nazareth. We're actually touching uh, the spot they believe Jesus was born. Uh, How do we know? Because they discovered this location in the second century from people who had relatives alive when it took place. So was it the spot? I don't know. We weren't there back 2,000 years ago. But the people who pointed out the spot did have relatives alive when it took place. And then again, you have... uh, Here's the area in their home where the manger is. Now, none of their home exists because since around the 3rd century A.D., pilgrims would go to Israel, and every time a pilgrim would go to Israel, they would chisel off a piece of the home like a rock and take it back with them. And so there's nothing left except this church that was built over the spot, but the home is completely gone. And what was fascinating is there was crusader graffiti. Here's graffiti from 1,000 years ago. This was the first church built in Israel and, and this is graffiti from the Crusades. And then if you're wondering if they have Starbucks, they don't, but they do have Square Bucks <laughs> in Bethlehem. So if you ever need a Square Bucks, uh, they do have. And then we went on into Jerusalem. This was our last day, so we're, we're, we're in the home stretch now. In Jerusalem at the, at the Israel Museum, they have a model, a massive model they built of first century Jerusalem during the time of Jesus. So this is what Jerusalem would have looked like, the wall pattern. Uh, You have the Temple Mount area. Herod built Solomon's temple would have just been the temple area. Herod built this entire shoebox around it. It was the largest temple in the world during the first century. You have the city of David coming down the hill here, the Herodian quarter. Outside of the city wall right here, there's a rock quarry, which is Golgotha, where Jesus was crucified. Right there, I've I've got a better shot here of the temple. You can see it. Now, the temple itself. Now, if you've ever seen the Golden Dome in Jerusalem, that is the Dome of the Rock. It's a Muslim shrine. It's roughly where the temple would have been. The temple is twice the size of the Golden Dome. So if you took the entire building of the Golden Dome, not just the dome, but the entire building and stacked it on top, two of them, that would have been the height of the temple in Jesus' time. And then again, you've got the city of David coming down the southern steps. David would have been at the top of the hill, so you could look at everyone's roof under you. That's how we could see Bathsheba there. And here is, so what you're looking at right now in the model, this is the actual city of David being excavated in Jerusalem right now, and they're finding all sorts of incredible artifacts in there. And then we went down into the Siloam tunnels. Uh, These were chiseled out over 3,000 years ago, water aqueducts for for safety. Remember David and his special forces guys, they came into the Jebusite city through the water tunnels, and they overthrew the city. These are the tunnels that David and his men came through to overthrow the Jebusite city, which would later become Jerusalem. And those of you who are with us this summer, do you remember when Trina preached for us this summer, and and she shared her story of the tragedy they went through as a family of losing, losing a child and how the story of Jesus and the Pool of Siloam really brought healing to their life. This was an emotional moment for us in the tour. Here's Trina and her husband, Ken, standing in the Pool of Siloam in Israel, uh, a spot that just brought so much healing to her life through the tragedy that she 
went through. Uh, here's us standing on the top of the Mount of Olives. Again, here's the Golden Dome. So I want you to imagine the temple being twice that size. That would have been the temple during Jesus' time. So imagine standing on the Mount of Olives, the view of the temple. And you see, here's the big shoebox that Herod built, still exists there. Here's the Garden of Gethsemane. This is an olive garden where Jesus you know, prayed the last night. You see the top of the Golden Dome in the garden. Now imagine the temple. Jesus would have seen the temple clearly as he was wrestling with God that night. And here's what's fascinating about this location. If Jesus turns around and he walks 20 minutes, he's at the top of the Mount of Olives. If Jesus walks another 20 minutes, he's in Bethany, the home of Mary and Martha. If Jesus walks another 20 minutes, he's in Wadi Kelt, that, that wilderness area I showed you. Jesus is one hour away from freedom. He has the escape route in the back door. I mean, think about this. He grew up seeing people crucified on crosses. He knows what to expect. He's one hour away from freedom. He can walk one hour. They will never find him. He'll be gone forever. Makes a lot more sense why he prayed, Father, if you're willing, take this from me. Yet, not my will, but your will be done. Here's the Herodian quarter. This is one of King Herod's, this is King Herod's main palace in Jerusalem. It was here that Pontius Pilate lived. And it would have been here that Jesus was beaten and tortured and whipped down in this courtyard. We're standing on modern-day Jerusalem. Two stories down would have been the first century street because, again, everything is built on a tell. And so real Jerusalem is two stories under where you walk today. And so down there would have been the area that Jesus would have been beaten. Let me ask you a question. How many times was Jesus whipped by the cat of nine tails? 39? Remember 39? Um, the Bible doesn't say that. Again, this is one of the things we've learned. 39 times actually comes from a very subtle anti-Semitic sentiment that came out of the Crusader period. The Crusaders were trying to blame the Jews for everything. You see, the Jewish law was you could not whip somebody more than 39 times. The Romans didn't have that law. The Romans could whip. That's why many people were scourged by the Romans, never made it to the cross because they died in the process. See, the reason Jesus died in six hours... They were surprised that he died in six hours because some people would stay alive two or three days on a cross. Jesus died in six hours very likely because of the beating that he took. How brutal and horrific it would have been. I mean, that, that, that cat of nine tails wraps around, people lose eyes, like the hooks get into the eyes and rip the eyes right out. I mean, it just, it, it just shreds your body. I mean, just even the graphic details are just even too much to even think about sometimes. They've excavated an area of Jerusalem, which is all the priestly homes, where all of the priests would have lived, and we know because of the artifacts found in the homes, this was the largest home. It's a 6,000 square foot palace, the most opulent of all of the high priest homes. This is the courtyard that I'm standing in there. It's a courtyard that is probably half the size of this room. Not a very big courtyard at all. Now, we don't know who actually lived in this home, but we know it's the biggest. So very likely, this was Caiaphas' home, the high priest, in Jesus' time. This would have been the courtyard that Jesus sat in with Peter denying him. They would have been very, very close to each other when Peter denied him to his face. It wasn't a big area at all. It was a very, very small area. And how many of you have ever heard the sermon? Again, this is one of the ones I used to preach that I got wrong. Ever hear the sermon... You know, the very same people who cried out, Hosanna, Hosanna, were the very same ones that cried, crucify him. 
Again, that's anti-Semitism. That came out of the Crusader time period. The people of Jerusalem never turned their back on Jesus. They never turned their back on Jesus. They were not the ones yelling, crucify him. Think about it. It's Passover. You're a first century Jew. You don't eat a lot of meat. Meat is a delicacy, right? If anything, you eat a little bit of fish, but you don't eat lamb except for special occasions like a feast. So there's this massive barbecue going on where you're eating a whole bunch of lamb and you're drinking a lot of wine. If you've eaten lamb all day and you've barbecued and you've partied and you've been drinking wine all day, what are you doing at night? You're knocked out of sleep. Why do you think Caiaphas and Pilate arrested Jesus at night under the cloak of darkness? Because they couldn't do it in the daytime in front of the people. By the time people are waking up the next morning, Jesus is already on the cross. And the people couldn't do anything about it. Here is where Golgotha is. Again, they built churches over everything. So where they would have put... And, and, and for those of you that think Jesus was, was killed on a hill, like on a hill far away stood an old... There was no hill. I, I hate to break it for you, but there was no hill. Jesus was crucified in a rock quarry. He would have been eye level to us. They, they didn't put the crosses up high. The crosses were very low because they wanted you to be able to look in the face of the person. They wanted you to see and smell every bit of it. So behind this glass area would have been the cross area. Behind this door would have been where his tomb, where they believe his tomb was. Uh, behind the tomb that they, they call the tomb of Jesus, there's another area about 20 feet away where they have other tombs that we're able to dig into, first century tombs. So we know this is outside the city walls because we were digging through these tombs. I'm almost done this is Robinson's Arch. This is about, it doesn't look like it from this photo. This is about three stories above our head. You can see the little fragments of the arch coming out from the wall. Let me give you some perspective for how big this temple is. This is Robinson's Arch right there. That's what we were standing under. It only goes up halfway up the wall. Imagine being a first century pilgrim. You've never been outside of a little village, never been outside of your little town. You're walking to Jerusalem and you're looking at this magnificent massive temple. Can you imagine the awe that you would be in to be in this position? This is the ruins of the temple. These are rocks of the temple that were destroyed and thrown over the edge of the wall that have not moved since AD 70 when the temple was destroyed. Remember what Jesus said about it? Do you see all these things? He asked, truly, I tell you, not one stone here will be left on another. Every one will be thrown down. There they are. They haven't moved for 2,000 years. Then finally, this is one of the only locations in all of Israel where we can say with 100% certainty Jesus stood on the stone. This is bedrock. This is the entrance to the, the uh, eastern gates on the southern steps of the temple. It's the only place. We know Jesus was in a lot of areas and a lot of buildings, but this is the only place we can say definitively Jesus actually stood on this stone and walked on this stone that we know of. And then we ended it on the southern steps receiving communion together. And for those of you that are part of Coastline Church, this is where we began 2,000 years ago. This is where the church began. When you study the book of Acts, it says they were all together in the house. They were all together in the house. What is the house in first century Judaism? It's the temple. It's the house of the Lord. They weren't in an upper room. They were in the house of the Lord. 
It says they were all seated. That tells us they weren't in a prayer meeting. They were in a Bible study. They were reading the Torah. And the Holy Spirit fell on them. And I imagine Peter comes out on the southern steps and he preaches the gospel. And it says 3,000 people are saved and water baptized. Where are you going to baptize 3,000 people in Jerusalem? The only place in all of Jerusalem you could do it is right here at the southern steps because at the bottom of the steps you have about 50 mikvahs, which are water immersion ritual you know, baptismals with the pool of Siloam, which is the size of two Olympic swimming pools at the bottom of those steps. It's the only place. This is where Coastline began. This is where the church began. This is where we originate from, these very steps. So let me wrap all this up. What is the story of the Bible? What is the story? If you take the entire story, the entire picture of the Bible, what is the story of the Bible? Well, honestly, I think Kanye got it right. Jesus is king. We're not. This is what our guide said over and over and over all week. Jesus is king. We're not. If Jesus was here today and he was inviting you to Christianity, you know how Jesus would do it? See, what we do in America, we say, come be a Christian. Jesus will be your savior. Your life will be so much better. He'll do all these things for you. No, Jesus would say it like this. The king of the universe is here, and you have an opportunity to surrender your will to his. That's the invitation. Will I get anything out of it? Don't matter. He's king. You are not. The king of the universe is here. And you have the opportunity to surrender and submit your will and your life for him. Because it's all about him. So let me leave with two final thoughts as we close this series out. There's one emotion we learned this week on tour that God does not have. When you study the Bible, God's very emotional. God has love. God has jealousy. God has anger. God has judgment. God has mercy. God has kindness. There's only one emotion in all of the Bible God does not have. What is it? Fear. Why? Because fear is a pagan emotion. Fear is a sign of paganism. I think oftentimes we do more to push people away from Christianity because they see fear in our life. What does fear communicate to people? Fear communicates that you have a God you don't trust. That's what fear, fear is paganism. Fear says, I don't trust God. I don't know whether God can get me in or out or through the situation that I'm in. I'm afraid. And so let me leave you with the message of Jesus. If you take the entire New Testament and you sum up the entire ministry, the entire message of Jesus in one simple word, the message and life of Jesus would be relax. I've got this. I've got you. That's his message. I don't know what you're going through. I don't know what you've been through. I don't know what you're facing right now. But if Jesus would hear today, he would say, relax. Don't worry. Don't fret. Don't be afraid. I've got this. I'm going to get you through it. I'm going to take care of you. And when you walk through the land of Israel, you feel it. You see it. It's, it's a miracle. You see, the Bible doesn't begin with in a galaxy far, far away or a long, long time ago. The Bible begins with very real people. God comes into time and space 
at a certain point in history, and over and over and over we see his covenant. And walking the land, I'm more convinced than ever that God's has said is real. His covenant with us is real. Would you close your eyes with me? Father, in the name of Jesus, God, we come before you today and we just, we just surrender to you. You're king, we're not. We lay our life down. We lay our will, not my will, but thy will be done. And God, I pray for every person here struggling with fear that they would just have this sense of relax come over them to know that you've got it under control. You're going to take care of them and you're going to get them through whatever it is they're facing. In the name of Jesus, amen. Would you stand with me?